Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so glad that you're here with us today. I know a lot of people are joining us online today. I want to welcome them as well. And so we're glad that you're here. I um, want to make note again of our upcoming seminar on February 3rd through 4th with Dr. Eddie Sharp. You might not know Eddie, but he's a dear friend of mine. He was um, my preaching professor. He was a longtime minister at the University Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas, then later at the University Avenue Church of Christ in Austin, Texas. And so he's a wonderful and fantastic uh, minister and preacher. And uh, I know that you'll be um, blessed by the messages that he brings. And so remember that seminar on February 3rd and 4th. And please do invite friends, family, neighbors. Well, sometimes truth is found in unlikely places. And so in 2006... Jack Black starred in a movie from the makers of Napoleon Dynamite entitled Nacho Libre. And uh, Black plays a cook in a monastery who secretly moonlights as a professional wrestler. He does this to raise money for the orphanage. Now the character that he plays is very devout, but also misguided. And so in a hilarious scene, Ignacio, who's played by Black, says to his wrestling partner, I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Well, Ignacio and his wrestling partner are about to compete in a big match. And Ignacio is worried because his friend is not baptized. He believes this is hindering them in their journey to do good. So what Ignacio do, does is he sneaks up on his friend when he's not expecting anything, and he baptizes him against his will. Um, he, he dunks him in water, and he says, praise the Lord. Now, Ignacio is wrong in his actions. As I said, he is misguided. But he's right in his love for his friend. He's right in his emphasis on baptism. He's right in understanding that baptism is a pivotal moment in a person's life that is not to be rejected or missed. And so yes, sometimes the truth is found in unlikely places. Who knew that hints of the gospel could be discovered in a movie like Nacho Libre? And so you may have guessed, but today we're gonna to talk about baptism. And so if you are newly baptized, if you've never been baptized, if you were baptized years ago, I hope that you'll benefit from this lesson. I hope you'll be blessed by it. There's some of us here today who know a whole lot about baptism, while others might not know that much. That's okay. We're here to learn together. We're here to, to let the text of Scripture, the Word of God, speak to us where we are at in this moment. Now, there's much we can say about baptism, but I want to begin with an important question. The question is this, what is your story? Now, this may seem like an unusual place to begin when talking about baptism, but it's probably not as usual as, as you might imagine. Baptism and story are linked together. And if we don't recognize this, it's a problem. Uh, the, the, the two of these just go hand in hand. We're going to unpack all of this in a moment but first, let's think about this question. What is your story? We all have one. 
What is yours? You know, some people want to be somebody. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to attain some type of fame. Others want to be successful. They want to make as much money as they can. They want to climb the company ladder. Some may have aspirations of service. They want to take a, a job that, that gives back to their community and helps to better society. These and others like them are the stories that we, we embrace. And they shape who we are and how we live our lives. But this idea of choosing your story, who you're going to be and what you're going to do, it's actually a modern one. If you think about ancient times, uh, most often you knew who you were going to be and what you were going to do on the day that you were born. If you were born a peasant, then you were going to stay a peasant your entire life. If your father was a farmer, then you were going to be a farmer. If your father was a carpenter, then you were going to study carpentry. And this is how it went. Now, knowing all of this, it's quite interesting to read the Bible and encounter passage after passage of people changing their story. And some of these accounts are obvious to us, others are not. Ancient people read the Bible differently than we do today. They saw things that we don't always see. They noticed things that we don't always notice. And one of the ways that they read scripture is that they saw baptism everywhere. It wasn't just a New Testament teaching. They interpreted the stories of the Old Testament as baptism stories. They knew how important baptism is, and they believed that it was written into the pages of the Bible before God ever commanded it as a blessing for all people. And so, for instance, here are a few of the, the stories in the Old Testament that early Christians read, and they interpreted as baptism stories. There's Noah and the Ark in Genesis 6. There's Moses and the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea in Exodus 14. There's Joshua and the crossing of the Jordan in Joshua 3. And then there's Jonah swallowed by a huge fish in the book of Jonah. But one of the most famous of these stories is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. And it's the story of Naaman. And it's a baptism story. It's one of the accounts where a person flips the script. Something happens, and this individual has a change of story. Something unheard of in those days. It may have even been thought as something miraculous, because people don't just change their stories. This has to be the work of God. And so what is 2 Kings 5 all about? It's about a man named Naaman, and he's not just any man. He's not a peasant. He's not your average person living in ancient days. He's the commander of an army. And he has quite the story because he knows all the prominent people, and he's a, a man of wealth and means, and if he wants something, then it's his. He just has to ask. He has servants. He has the king's ear. He has it all, but he also has leprosy. 
this debilitating disease. And this is his story. This is how 2 Kings 5 begins. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. But he was a leper. And so Naaman has a problem. But it's not just a leprosy problem. He has a story problem. He's living the wrong story. He's putting his trust in the wrong things. He's living a story that will not last. And we see this in how he tries to solve the problem of his leprosy. He trusts in his position. He trusts in his might. He trusts in his wealth. Well, Naaman learns from a slave girl from Israel that there is a prophet there who can help with his ailment. And so here is his response to all this. So Naaman went in and told his lord, told the king, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, Elisha sees the problem from a mile away. And he recognizes that this is not just a leprosy problem. Naaman has a story problem. He's putting his trust in horses and chariots. Now God can cure him through the prophet Elisha, but what good will that do? He'll just keep living the life that he was living. His story will not change. He'll be thankful that his wealth, his position, his might allowed him to purchase his healing. Naaman needs something different. He needs a different kind of healing. And Elisha is prepared. So Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, 
I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Naaman does not respond well to Elisha's instructions. Why? Because they do not fit into the story that he is living. Even when Naaman is sick and has this terrible disease, he wants this, the healing to be about him. He wants it to be about what he brings. He wants everyone to see his horses and his chariots as he marches to Elisha's house. And when Elisha is unwilling to go along with Naaman's narrative, Naaman becomes angry and he flies into a rage. And this is how narcissism works. Think of the absurdity of this situation. Naaman is willing to risk his health, his very life, because he's not going to get his way. And he may not even be able to recognize this because he's in the grip of sin. He's not used to being told no. He's a person who gets his way. People only tell him what he wants to hear. Elisha's simple command is a threat to his way of life. And Naaman is more afraid of losing this, losing his way of life, than of losing his own life. He's willing to die rather than give up the lie that he's the most important person in the room. And so Naaman suffers from a disease that's more deadly and debilitating than leprosy. Well, thankfully, he is surrounded by some courageous people. And they see the gravity of this situation. They, they see what Naaman cannot see. They step up in this pivotal moment and they help to save his life. And they do this at the threat of being punished, at the threat of losing their job. These are people of character. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman is saved, not because of anything he did, but because he was finally able to submit to the will of God. And this is the beginning of something new. Naaman is actually healed of two diseases. He's healed of his leprosy here, we see that, but he's also healed of his narcissism. He's given a new story. And he's not going to return to the story that he was living before. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, 
I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And so you can see why early Christians read this as a baptism story. They understood that Naaman immersing himself in the Jordan wasn't the same as Christian baptism, but they recognized the parallels between the two. Naaman was not only healed of his leprosy, he was given a new story. His life changed in that moment, and he was a new man. And this is not the only account in the Bible like this. There are many. There's the story of Noah and his family who are saved by water and enter into a brand new world. There are the slaves in Egypt who are set free from their bondage when they pass through the Red Sea. There's a man who breathes threats and murders against the church and participates in the stoning of Stephen who becomes the most famous missionary that the church has ever known. There is a pagan jailer who is on the cusp of committing suicide when he thinks his prisoners have all escaped, who stops when he hears the voice of Paul, who shares the good news with him. And he and his family are baptized and they begin to follow Jesus. These are just a few. There are many, many more. And what the early church recognized in these accounts, whether they were from the Old Testament or the New, is that baptism changes lives. It changes our stories. It changes who we are and where we are going. And so do we recognize this? Can we look back on our own lives and and see a dramatic change when we submitted to God's will? were immersed in water, and arose to newness in life. If we can't, something is wrong. We've missed something along the way. We have failed to recognize the power of baptism and what it truly means for our lives. And this is a problem. One minister, John Timmer, points out how we have failed to grasp all that God wants us to know concerning baptism. He writes, we don't understand baptism very well. We have an underdeveloped understanding of baptism. I can tell from my annual interviews with 11th and 12th graders. I always ask them, what does your baptism mean to you? What if you had not been baptized? What difference would that make? Then I sit back and watch them agonize over an answer. They agonize over it because they never gave it much thought. Baptism just isn't a part of their living experience. So I ask you, is baptism a part of your living experience? Does it make a difference in your life? What you do and who you are? Because it should. This is how early Christians understood baptism. They saw in Scripture how baptism changes our stories. It alters the trajectories of our lives. And in baptism, we renounce the ways that we were living. And God gives us a new story to live out. I want you to notice something that that N.T. Wright 
says, he says, baptism is the ground on which we stand linked to Jesus. His dying and rising and the power of his victory are ours because we are his. But if you imagine that you can get that power without that identity, well, good luck. What is Wright saying here? Well, he's saying that baptism is essential. When we are baptized, we are united with Jesus and his death and resurrection. We die to ourselves and we're raised a new person. This is all true. But if we do not also embrace the identity of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our, our baptism is not doing us much good. Because we are rejecting its power. We are not walking in step with the Spirit. We're not living a new story. We've just gone back to what we were doing before. So I ask you again, what is your story? How has it changed? In what ways have you died to your old self and began to live anew? In what ways are you living out the death and resurrection of Jesus in your life today? Baptism matters. It flips the script. It changes our lives. It sets us on a new path and it gives us a new story. Baptism is not just a ritual. It's not just something that we do to gain membership into the church. It is an encounter with the living Christ. And we do not encounter Christ and stay the same. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Have you died? Have you crucified your old self? Have you renounced that story that you once were living? If so, then you have been set free. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. You have received the blessing of baptism. And so embrace your new identity. Embrace the way of Jesus. And go and live a different story. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you today. And we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy. 
We're so thankful that you have given us this blessing of baptism where we are united to Christ, his death and his resurrection, where we receive forgiveness of sins, where our old self is crucified and where we are raised to walk in newness of life. Father, I pray that those of us who have been baptized will not return to our old story, our old way of living, but will embrace the new story that you have given us. We're so thankful that Jesus has prepared the way, that his death and his resurrection has made all this possible. May we embrace his life and live like him each and every day. We pray this in his name. Amen.